This is a poem by my friend Brittany Posmer called Letting Go. There are things we want to say but don't. There are things we want to say but don't, like this. The ones we hoped would love us but didn't don't matter now. The ones we hoped would love us but didn't don't matter now. We have to stop trying to stretch them to cover our holes. Like a blanket that shrunk as we grew large and never kept us warm, although we gave ourselves completely to believing it would. Say, let go to the world and to all that clings beyond its time. And then again, in a whisper to yourself, say, let go to the world and to all that clings beyond its time. And then again to yourself, courage is a choice and defenselessness a revelation. Say, my heart spills milk. Say, my heart spills milk and know you mean amen, amen, amen. So thank you all very much for uh, all the questions posted yesterday. I haven't looked at the ones for today. It was very helpful for me to read those and clarified some things about practice for me. So I'm going to, going to address that. The talk is springing out of those. So some questions and hesitations and entanglements and doubt come from mind's alienating activity. They are mind's alienating activity. The question arises because we're disconnected from this. And some questions, hesitations, and entanglements and doubts come out of resting at the heart of the matter, out of sincere, intimate engagement with the path, and they're not the same. Sometimes a teacher's function, and this is just a function, this is not status, this is function. This is not status, this is function. Sometimes a teacher's function is to transmit faith and wipe away doubts, to, to give heart, to encourage. And sometimes a teacher's function is to drive one deeper into doubt, to help us stay put in the heat of our question the genuine ones, to help us take up inquiry as path. Because there's part of us that's deep, and frankly, there's part of us that's very shallow. There's part of us that has profound intentions and aspirations, and part of us that really does just want to have a good time. Let's be real here, folks. Sometimes a teacher's function is to transmit faith and wipe away doubt, like cleaning a window that has been dirty so long that when you went to the car wash, you were like, damn, that's a clear window. <laughs> and sometimes the teacher's function is to drive one deeper into doubt. And the teacher is everywhere and everything. It's not just a human being with a mouth that makes noise. And the heart of the matter is everywhere and everything. It's not just sitting here in meditation. 
So some questions, hesitations, entanglements, doubts, they live in us silently. They're like beyond saying. They don't leave us, but we also don't articulate them. They haven't presented themselves as a, as a question in, in words, and that's okay. And some have a shape. Some can be given a shape so they can be danced with. Spiritual longing needs a shape. That shape is method. Method is the answer to spiritual longing. Some questions, doubts, entanglements can be given a shape. How does practice liberate all beings? I mean, for the, any rational person who's ever turned on, I don't know, Fox News or CNN, to think that sitting here in meditation is going to liberate beings is the most asinine thing for the ordinary mind. And yet we say that, and something is resonant about that ridiculous statement. I remember times when I felt it was ridiculous. I'd be one of those people protesting in the Zendo who are just like, everyone else is chanting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True believers. <laughs> How does practice liberate all beings? Is there anything that is not illusion? Questions and hesitations and doubts that arise from mind's alienation, they rightly answer themselves by letting go of themselves. The dissolution of the question was the point. And in the dissolution of the hesitation, the doubt, the entanglement, at least for a moment, being at the heart of experience. Questions, hesitations, entanglements, and doubts that arise from the heart of experience are different. First of all, arriving at an answer is not the point. I remember in the old days, you could have a conversation with somebody, and sometimes people would say, I don't know. But nowadays, everybody just pulls out their phone. Oh, here it is. Spiritually, arriving at the answer is not the point. As much as we may want resolution, resolving the tension and returning to business as usual is not the point. In fact, that's a sad thing. To live in our questions is to live in a particular kind of tension. Coming from the inside and the outside at the same time. The ritual of koan practice in some ways is trying to 
physicalize and sustain that inner and outer inner and outer tension that helps sustain a question. But it's not the only way, of course. Returning to business as usual is not the point. To be heartsick about the human condition is a very beautiful and profound thing. To really be heartsick about the human condition. And spiritual masters of all stripes and cultures and times have let this heartsickness penetrate them so deeply that they cannot bear to just go with waking sleep consensus reality. They can't bear it. Don't think of somebody who spent 14 years in a cave or 30 days in a desert or where there's innumerable examples of somebody who just really liked to be alone. You and I can do and are doing the same thing in our own way. You don't have to let inquiring into this heartbreaking conundrum of life and death be a hobby. You know, the details of your life and formal practice, that's really not the primary thing, although we can get entangled in that as the primary thing, get disconnected from the heart of the matter. Leave palace and homeland. Prioritize the deep over the trivial. Don't dismiss your intuition that whispers, love is all that matters. Or make that into a bumper sticker. But ask, how can I live into that? How can I embody that? How do I become that? If you think of the Buddha's example, modern people like to say, well, this Buddha, you know, he really needed therapy because he just abandoned his wife and kids. No. Cherish yourself and those dear to you too much not to see for yourself what's on the other side of the veil of tears. We're afraid of the cost. We're afraid of what we might have to give up. Strange though, because everything is given up. Everything is given up, but at least we say, well, I don't want to give it up right now. We're afraid of the cost of what we might have to give up if we really take that next deeper step into this process. And you can probably relate to that, that, that moment when you back away from the edge of really dropping into luminosity.
that edge we back away from of truly letting go. Instead, maintaining our little toeholds. We're afraid of the cost. Faith can see that more fearsome is the cost of not paying the cost. And it's a very interesting situation. The, the ordinary mind does not understand and cannot be there to witness its own dissolution. Dogen Zenji, maybe he was saying something similar. Buddha does not necessarily know it's a Buddha. So this is true about intimate practice moments, and also this, this exploration is true about the larger spread of our life. It's not necessarily that we will have to give up the good stuff. Someone asked about non-duality and beer. They are non-dual. It's not necessarily that we will have to give up the good stuff but we have to give up our illusions about the good stuff. In some ways, that's harder. It's harder to retract our projections on people, places, things, experiences than it is to put those experiences in a closet for a while, because at least there's something that says, I can go back to that later, still be the good stuff. What we are asked, as we have all verified and all been doing, is to keep offering up our illusions. And just keep offering up our illusions. Illusions are, what does it say, endless or boundless. Or... I vow to drop them. That's all that's asked. And the sickness contains the cure. For some people, it's a powerful gate to work with a query like, who am I? What am I? Am I? This word, I, what exactly is it referring to? If you, if it appears at this moment, what is that word pointing to? What does it designate? If it was referring to a particular experience, the body, for example, then the feeling I am, the feeling I am I would phase in and out of being, just like body experience phases in and out. We would have these very frightening moments of not knowing who we were, and not in the good way. What does this thought, I, actually refer to? Descartes was on to something. I think, therefore I am. 
seems that way. Mind calm, detached from thought though, and I fades. Identity and personality goes. And hopefully sooner or later you will taste this state, yet important state. Mind calm sufficiently, identity and personality goes. Face all radiance, as TK said. But am seems to remain. A sense of being, being a quiet mind without much going on, or being nothing, or being spacious. There's still being. And beings always suffer. Beings are not free. I mean, just like the nuts and bolts of this is one is in that state. And you get up and you go into a trip about how somebody opens a door. Or the way they do kinhin. Right? So much for no self. So am seems to remain. I have a quiet mind. This is just a thought, but it reflects a way that we feel about what is true in experience. We feel that there's this thing called I that has, whatever having is, a thing called a mind. But what's the haver? Dogen said, Buddha way transcends being and non-being. Am I? It's not about the words and it's not philosophical because the koan is like a capsule of undoing and you swallow it and you let it stay in your belly and eventually it, it consummates. It, it, you trail off into the unsayable. It's not about the words. They're just a delivery system for, for this longing to clarify. Inquiry immersed into consummation trails off into the unsayable. And, but if you're a Zen student, you have to say the unsayable. You can't help doing that. But how does practice liberate all beings? What's a being? In some sense, what am I is the first koan. In the, in the Rinzai Zen system, the first koan is called the Dharmakaya koan, the breakthrough koan. That which, through sufficient passion, will initiate us into true nature. Mm. 
But then this question is a good one. How does practice liberate all beings? I may enjoy a measure of freedom. A tremendous amount of completely fabricated distress drops away when we realize our nature. Do you get a halo and are you showered with flowers? No, sometimes the opposite. But a tremendous amount of burden drops away. How does practice liberate all beings though? A, an inhabited heart is not content with oneself just being at peace. It's disturbed by the disparity between my peace and the peace of others. It's rightly disturbed. What's a being? What is their nature? Of course, a rational mind says, well, their bodies with consciousness. And you can describe what they're made of. There's a physical and mental elements and it all works together. And that's what a being is. Okay. Because of the rational mind, you can go to the dentist and they're not using a saw and a, you know, a jackhammer to get your tooth out. You have to bow to the rational mind. The practice is more fundamental. Someone walks into your life. Through what door do they enter? Someone walks out of your life. Through what door do they leave? Dogen Zenji. regarding similar matters says, and I hope you can forgive that I, I change things to suit my purposes. I do that all the time. <laughs> A deep sea fish never leaves the water no matter how far it swims. We can't step out of our life. We can't step into our life. Deep sea fish never leaves the water, no matter how far it swims. Is there water for such a fish or not? If you're born into a world of water, is there water? If water is so intimate that you don't know it, is it water? And there's not just one body of water, there's not just one ocean. And yet, immersed in the ocean, is there even an ocean? From the outside, you could say that's clearly an ocean. But from the inside, is there an ocean? 
Is there an ocean other than that immersed in ocean? Bodies of water flow within themselves. There are universes of water where there is neither inside nor outside of water. Wherever we go, it functions freely. There is no place the sidewalk ends. And for that reason, it's not easily understood. Wherever we go, it's ocean. You could say it like this. Wherever we go, we breathe in our own fragrance. Many people don't even know, for example, they have body odor. Someone else has to tell them. And people usually aren't courageous enough to tell us. And so they're breathing in our fragrance. We don't know it. Because wherever we go, we can't help but breathe in our own fragrance. There's never an interruption in our fragrance. So how can we know our fragrance? Can we? If so, how? For a personality, this is impossible, unreasonable, and maybe even dangerous. Be grateful to everyone and everything. Be grateful to everyone and everything. For a personality, it's impossible, it's unreasonable, and maybe even dangerous. And as I've been trying to say, you're not going to convert the personality. Some personalities like Buddhist ideas a lot. Some don't. It actually doesn't matter all that much. It's impossible for the personality to grok. But suppose it's the heart within the heart's request. Suppose there are are deeper requests alive in us than meeting our instinctual needs and our ego needs. This is a classic um, teaching. I put the little card on Manjushri from the, the Tibetan mind training system. Be grateful to everyone and everything. Be grateful to oneself, therefore, and to all you include. Be grateful for others and all they include. These are one. If it's not actualized on one side, it will not actually be actualized on the other side. It will just be pretend. Innumerable beings dwell within us. Uncountable beings dwell within us. We're not just talking about all the little critters on our skin and microbiome. 
Be grateful to oneself and all you include. Be grateful for others and all they include. Reality doesn't have two sides. There's no other side. We say on the other side of the door, but you go through the door and there's no other side of the door because you're in the room. Be grateful to everyone and everything. I'm going to read Kindness by Naomi Shai. Hopefully I won't cry too much. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken and who stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how they too were someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept them alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes, sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. We're calling in the force of love. And we are invited to call in the force of love. In the Holy Quran, there are 99 names of God. We could say there are uncountable names of love. We could say there's nothing that's not a name or a shape of love. We could say the divine flirts with us in infinite ways. A deer, heartburn, a pickle, a leaf, an angry thought. We could say that there is nothing that is a name of love, and I can say that as I am. I can say it, but I can't live it. When we say it, maybe we can live it. Love is tenderness. Love is ferociousness. Love is awareness. Love is forgetfulness. Love is relaxation. Love is cutting oneself slack. Love is not cutting oneself slack. Love is vital, cutting presence. Love is the feedback when we refuse to inhabit what is. And love is the thirst 
to inhabit what is. Love is love even when that's the last thing we would call it. Love is tough love. What is here is here. What is not here is not here. Refusing and half-meeting what's here activates a tough love. Embracing what's here is love activated, so nothing can be held on to. What's not here is here, and what is here is not here. That too is love. Lovers Never Elsewhere by TK. Love was never elsewhere. And when I stopped calling everything that was not love by the name of love, there was love right where it had been all along. The lover of love owns nothing, and even that she longs to give away. The rational mind tries to figure out the percentage of profit on this bargain. The percentage is not good. And a secret place hidden before mind is a space without measure, bright with birthlessness. It is pure presence. The body of realization is a pinprick of light shining through the dark. Devotees burn the world to ash in that brightness, and in the remains they find a jewel. Even giving this away, they sing a song of the empty heart. All of it makes for bad business. All of it makes for unborn joy. This is the path of all loss, no gain. Who wants that? Who wants to give up the great mantra, what about me? What about me? Love is radiance, outward directive, non-self-referencing brightness. Self-fixation is the occluded dullness of love. Now love is not sense-making. Love is not even relationship. Relationship is a subset of love, like sense-making is a subset of knowing like appearances are a subset of awareness. Love is all give with no place from which give is given. If we wish, and maybe that's the, that's the thing, if we wish, we can practice and encounter the unborn brightness, the empty heart, the dark of non-discrimination. We can become untethered from the known and delivered into that innocence. Not one, because there's no witness to say one. Not two, because awareness never takes sides. And we, as a matter of course, pop out. The world shifts our gears. And meeting world 
encountering phenomena, a long stick is long and a short stick is short. Long stick is long, a short stick is short. Not better or worse. We pop out of wisdom's dark and the world shifts our gears. In meeting world, there is no long stick. There is no short stick. Why? It's four feet in length. Why? It's three feet in length. Each thing, each thing If we don't have marination in beyond knowing, if that hasn't imprinted our heart in some way, in some ways it's like someone who is born and lives in a room with television going day and night, having never left the house, making proclamations and conclusions about how the world is based on secondhand images and information. The world is largely created by such people. What's the proper use of the intellect? What's the proper use of the mind? Obviously, well-roasted coffee. That's a given. What else? This is an important question. What's the proper use of the intellect? Amplifying virtue, abandoning harm. That would be enough, actually. I would be suspicious of an argument against love as a proper use of the mind. And I would be suspicious of anyone narrowing love down to a simplistic idea, which is an intellect's tendency. What's the proper portion of intellect to simply Nen, the naked texture of life. How much should we live in symbols and abstractions? That is what thoughts and images are, right? That's clear by now, I'm pretty sure. Everybody knows that. These are symbols, not actuals. They're actually thoughts, but a thought is not actually what it's symbolizing. Never has been, never will be. It's a strange addiction. What's the proper proportion of intellect to nen, to, to, to intimacy? That's a question for each person. Anyways, they're all mixed up. Mind and no mind alternate. Mind and no mind co-arise. Mind and no mind are all mixed up. If we fixate on one side, we lose our freedom. If we fixate on the other side, we lose our freedom. If we only know one side, we only know one side. Resting as the heart of experience.
I'm glad I chose that word, resting. This point in retreat is good to take your foot off the gas a little bit, not in your constancy of practice, but in your intensity of practice. Yeah, it no longer takes as much effort because we could say there's some momentum that's been generated. There's, there's the, the echoes of the effort of contact, and so it's already resting as the heart of experience. And have trust that what springs from there is not separate from the heart of experience. Resting at the heart of experience, Britt Posner says, after all of the fight has gone out, after all of the fight has gone out, there is this the invitation to extraordinary tenderness. Thank you for being here. <laughs>